I'm Frank Gallagher, host of Soundman Confidential. It's showtime. Plug in. Welcome to Soundman Confidential. I'm Frank Gallagher, the host of this wee podcast here. My guests today are Galen Ayers and Paul Simonon, and they have a new album out called Can We Do Tomorrow Another Day? Welcome. Thank you very much. Hi. Thanks for coming on. There's a there's a long tradition um, of duos singing duets, Johnny Cash and, and June Carter, come to mind. How did you go about composing the songs on your new album? I mean, you're obviously having a playful time with it from what I can gather and see. Uh, well, it sort of started, like I, I had some songs and Galen had some songs and uh, uh, we, we met up and we talked about doing some music. Like, essentially, uh, Galen suggested, oh, maybe uh, to play bass on the record that she wanted to make. And I uh, said, so, well, I've got an idea for a record as well. And and it just clicked that, you know what, this just worked together and... Uh, we put our songs together and working together and we uh, we came up with some more songs uh which sort of um you know showed more of our individual characters but as 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 a partnership you know what he said <laughs> there you go well, let's, let's start <laughs> your answer okay <laughs> 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 Uh, no, I mean that's exactly what happened, and uh, and obviously as we got to know each other more, and we understood the kind of the the possibilities of having two voices and our particular voices, and the things that we wanted to achieve with the album, which happened organically. I mean, we had some intention of things we we didn't want to do, which I always think is useful, um, even if you don't know what you do want to do. And uh, yeah, and so then. Well, we didn't want to repeat ourselves. It's like that's it's for sure. Like, yeah. Just, and the fact of working together, obviously, for me, it's the first time I've, I've worked with Gallon. And uh, so, yeah, that was a new uh, journey of exploration for both of us, you know. Aye. So, so both, of, both of you are experienced. Uh, you're, both of you are experienced artists. But in this instance, how did the melodies uh, come together and, and the writing uh, to arrive at a complete song that 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 gelled for both of you because obviously you brought ideas in and Galen brought ideas in and uh we we genuinely had a round table i would go and um and and hang out at pools and we here's a round table there and we'd have tea or wine or whatever was the flavor or what time of day and we just sit there and we um had guitars and we would just i, I think at the end of the day we we've said this before but it's this idea of that if if a song feels good and right just with one instrument, normally an acoustic guitar, then you have a good, great beginning for for good you know. foundation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, so that you, really was our only. Yeah. You know. Where did the where did the, most of the words come from? Was that collaborative? Uh, yeah. Out of our heads. Aye, obviously that aye, but well, you uh, never know. And our hearts, Paul. And our hearts. Come on. No, your heart, my head. Ah, <laughs> oh, what a monster that would be! <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, it's like as Gallen says, you know, it's like there'd be a guitar and and Gallen played a few chords, and we'd sort of work out a melody, or she had a melody already. Then and it's like the, 
good time in Paris was quite easy because we were just sort of like having a conversation across the table about Paris and uh, and I sort of came up with my lines and Gallon came up with in an answer to mine or, or mine in answer to her. So it's like a conversation. Whereas Aye. Room Up the Top was sort of like another different approach of, I don't know, being at my place, which I suppose is a bit haunted. Well, it's haunted with me anyway, I know that. Uh, and um, and just looking around the room and, you know, th there is a skeleton in there and there is a painting hiding behind the curtain. So all the information was there in front of us. But, you know, I mean, also Room at the Top really is about, on the surface, it seems it's about a room upstairs in a, a solid building, but it's actually really referring to what's going on inside your head. Yes, yes. I like oh, that song. Heart. I actually like that song. But you yeah, did have a good time. That's a very fun one to play. Um, I, I love I love the way our voices work in that song, especially the kind I, of the lower harmony with them. I miss Paris. I haven't been there nearly enough lately. Uh, no. <laughs> Sea <laughs> uh, Shanty, I loved Sea Shanty. That uh, spoke to me. That uh, that song spoke to me here on first listen as well. Uh, the the wee influences are. I mean, it's a great album. I mean, a blend of you know the melody, the beats, the harmony, lyrics, English, French, and Spanish. Yeah. You know. One of my neighbours, I introduced her to, to, to your work and she just texted me this morning and said they sing beautifully in Spanish. And she's a native, yeah, she's, a native she's a native speaker. Um, uh, it was funny in France of all places just now, um, I had French, like Parisians who I guess were bilingual, like French and Spanish, telling me that I had an accent, but that it was acceptable. <laughs> oh, they would. <laughs> They'd like, yeah, that's you know, Paris. That's Paris. Uh, I saw. I saw a clip from the show you played in Paris, and and the crowd were were they were really into it, you know. Uh, and I've spent my my whole working life in, in live music. I get I'm a live sound guy, and uh, yeah. and I love it. Um, does playing live? How do the songs translate playing live from the the studio? I'm always interested in that because I get the I get the record, I I get the songs when they're finished in the record, and I get one shot yeah. and one take. And so, how how was your the process for you guys? It seems like the record and the sound is really organic and real and authentic. It doesn't sound mm. like there's a lot of fakery there. No, there's, there's no, no, stu there's there's no, no studio fakery. I can tell. There's yeah, no there's studio no trickery. Fakery. Exactly. There's no trickery, it's straight as it is. And like playing the songs on stage was easy in so far as, well, easy in so far as in terms of the sound, as Gallon mentioned earlier, the song was written with, an, the songs were written with, essentially with an acoustic guitar. So once you had that foundation there, the, then the other stuff like the drums or the bass or the keyboards, they were just adding other elements to it, you know, just uh -huh. to enrich it. So there's obviously there's no intention to be exactly like the record, but it's more direct because obviously you've got an audience and you're not sort of in a recording studio. Right. Did the same band that played on the record play live with you? Uh, no, because Leo, um, he used to be in, in a band called Big Audio Dynamite and yeah. me and Gallon figured out quite early on that as 
not possible for me. Well, I could do it, play bass and sing at the same time, but then it took me away from her in terms of like sonically the, the sound of the of a guitar yeah. playing for like her and, and for me actually for tuning as well, uh, yeah. for singing. Uh, it made it a lot easier. So I asked Leo to come in and, and to take over the bass department. Yeah, that was a really interesting discovery because at first we thought, well, let's try it. And we invited guitarists to come in and we kind of, and then Paul was playing bass. And it, like within 20 minutes, I just was just like, oh, this is not going to work just in terms of pitching, but also just in energy and, and the fact that because we're singing together and bass is just like notoriously difficult to, to sing to. And um, so that was an interesting development. And then um, we had a, Seb, who plays on the record, wasn't available. He was touring. So um, my good friend, Jeremy Stacey, uh, joined us for that. And he just come off tour from, um, I think it was with, uh, oh, I'm blanking on the name now, uh, King Crimson. Right. Sorry, oh, Paul. Progs. Oh, <laughs> the, progs pro the progressives. <laughs> oh, <progs>. <laughs> <laughs> we have we have a divided, yeah, un you know, like a family um Oh my God, speaking of progressive punk, though, I've got to tell you something. For some reason, I was started reading the Wikipedia page of Sid Vicious the other day for kind of weird whatever. And I mean, I'm misquoting it, but did you know that what the apparently Sid got his name, Sid, his nickname from a friend's hamster who was called Sid Barrett? Wow. I know, I know the name Sid was from a hamster. Sid Barrett. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There you go. There yeah, well, is the things of our collaboration. Yeah, right there, point. right there. Don't, it all started with that. Trust Wikipedia. It's, they like they make it up the, as they go along. Like all the best stories, it all starts with a hamster. So, <laughs> I, I laughed so much. I was like, oh, that is brilliant. Sid Vicious, Sid Barrett. I mean, they couldn't be more like luminaires and the kind of similar kind of, you know, um, stars uh, in the whole world. It was just really made me laugh. A hamster. That's a good one. That's a good one. So you gonna are you gonna keep touring with us? Uh, are you gonna are you touring touring? Are you just picking up wee gigs here and there, weekending or what's well, uh, the landscape has changed a lot, you know, and, and it gets really, really changing in terms of especially out here in the UK with Brexit and everything. So oh. there's a lot to navigate and in terms of economy and just the amount of bloody paperwork now. Um even more so than before. So, uh, can you elaborate on that? Because, because uh, this this is a thing that's come up uh, with me talking to other people. The nuts and bolts of touring with mm -hmm. after Brexit, it must be awful. Put this, well, put it this way: in Europe, it's like for anyone from the United Kingdom, we're only allowed uh, on European shores for three months. And then we got to have like three months off and then we can come back. So obviously in terms of the people that, that do the groundwork, the lighting, the sound people, the truck drivers, everybody involved with putting on the show, that they usually do one uh, tour and then they go off straight onto another tour. So they're working all, all the time. But now they can't. So, um, so a lot of people are hiring stuff in within the, the other country so so it's sort of putting a lot of people out of work really that yes. used to work around europe as as you know to keep the whole thing on the road yeah yeah it's uh 
it, it's happening because uh, I'm I'm friends with the Simple Minds boys, and and they they yeah. they rent they rent out of Belgium. Yeah. They rent their buses in in Austria. You know, they rent the trucks. That's over it. There. That's yeah. it. And then when they come to the UK, they'll just rent. You know, you can't. You can hardly even bring the stuff in from overseas from there too. I know. This, well, as Gala mentioned, it's like paperwork and all that stuff. But you know what? I think there's there's got to be a way around to sort of bend around the corner. So, to, and what I was suggesting, and we've yet to discuss this, I was just thinking, well, why why don't we just do like five shows in Rome, five nights in in Berlin, or, or whatever. And you know what? If if you outstay your way, welcome. What's, what were they going to do? What hang you? There's nothing they can do. They'll probably yeah. fine you, I suppose, which would be boring. But um, you know, like, oops, sorry, I lost my passport. Uh, We've all lost the, our the, passport. The thing is, <laughs> the, thing is oh, the margins. Yeah. The margins. You know, I mean, we're lucky because we have the support of Sony, and, and you know, but but other bands, they, you know, I think they used to be this tradition. I mean. I mean, I definitely remember when I was a teenager where you could be at the, the end of a bill of a festival and God knows where, and you just, you know, rock up with your mates, do the gig and then kind of sleep in your car and then go off to the next one. And like that, that doesn't, you can't really, you can't do that anymore. Well, well, the, the, well I think for us, it well, is possible. I think for us, it's possible because I think what we could feasibly do is do a whole batch of shows around Europe and then come back to the UK and I do all the working men's clubs on, on the east coast of England and all the way up to Scotland. You know, we could, like like I said, like sort of two nights in Hull or something like that. I don't know. It's, there's, oh, that just sounds so romantic. <laughs> Listen, you don't realise Hull has got on the coastline there, got amazing beaches, amazing seafood and, and great characters. And the working men's clubs are brilliant. They've got proper old school stages and all that. Yeah, well, uh, I love uh, the venue in uh, in Paris. In fact, Chris Franz left a message on my Instagram because uh, from the reel of the of the show saying that he'd played a. I'm going to say it wrong. How do you say it, Paul? La, la, la maroquinerie. That he said, yeah, <laughs> and they, they, he'd uh, Chris said that they'd played there with Tom Tom Club a bunch, and um, and they loved it. And I've got to say, I mean, I really enjoyed that. Everyone was so kind. The venue was perfect size. Um, I thought the sound was excellent. I, looking at the photos, I thought that it was really fun. The lighting and everything was very theatrical and interesting and varied. So it was a cool venue. But that's how it should be, rather than giant concerts. That's why I don't like doing festivals. So like nobody can see you. You've got no, no control over the environment. You're, you're wheeled on. Yeah. You <laughs> and then you're wheeled on. Wheeled on. <laughs> And then, and then the next batch come on. Whereas if you can sit up like sort of like five hundred people in in a small place and do two nights or three nights there, then everybody like from surrounding area can go there. You know, um, I think that's the way to go. And personally, I actually prefer seeing the audience in front of me rather than half a mile away. Aye. I, I, well, I just did a I just did a Cruel World Festival. I, I, I look after the yeah. gang of gang of four, and we played the yeah. Cruel World Festival. Wheeled on, wheeled off, but we went for it. We went for the throat and and got a result. But that's yeah. not always the case at festivals, you know. Yeah. If you go for, uh, you've got to go for it. But some bands, I was like listening to bands off in the distance. I won't, I won't name names, but it sounded like being in in uh, in boots listening to the music, you know. Yeah, or, or, or HSBC. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Like t- they've turned banks into like sort of like shopping malls. I, I, it's homogenization of uh, society. Yeah. 
But uh, uh, um, a bunch of my friends actually who came to Paris, the Paris shows, they told me that they loved the album but preferred the live show. And I think one of the things that Paul and I spoke about was um, earlier on was this idea that you know once the lyrics done or the structure of the song, there's no reason that you can't change genre like that we did in the gig and, and dub something out or extend one track. And I think that makes it really interesting for the audience, you know, too, as well as the players. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like there's certain songs on the record that really, once the singing is done, you could actually just continue playing that rhythm, um, bringing in another instrument over the top of it. And it's like people can just have a moment to dance rather than having to listen just to the lyrics. You know, it's like, okay, now, now it's time to have a dance. All right. Aye, that's a great idea. You know, there's some bands that can't jam. I don't understand yeah, well, that. Yeah. What's the point if you, if you can't take it somewhere else? Yeah, especially know? with some of the reggae and the Latin stuff we've got. You know, we've extended some of them on stage. And, and obviously, with a record, you can't really do that because you, you've only got a limited amount of space on each side. Aye, bandwidth. I, I, I'd like to get a copy of the record on vinyl. I'll have to look into doing yeah. that uh, at some point. And uh, Paul, can can you can you recall the first time you played your instrument on stage? Because you've been an artist since birth. But uh, yeah, it was probably about I think it was nineteen seventy six, and it was supporting the Sex Pistols in Sheffield at a pub called the Mucky Duck. There was about fifth, uh, maybe about twenty people in the audience. Uh, and and it's and I'd only been playing bass six months before, um, so uh, yeah. And what I, what band was that? Uh, some band called the Clash. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, that was, yeah, that was the first band I started in. So, so I didn't know that before. That every- yeah, and no, I never played an instrument in my life, and 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 it was Mick Jones. Uh, he sort of helped me the rudiments and, and that was way before Joe joined the group. We stole, we stole Joe from the one Oh one ers Actually our paths did cross back then, uh, with, the with the, the clash. Cause Ace Penna, one of my boys worked with you in America, right, okay. in America. He, he also worked with talking heads with me. So when okay. t- talking heads were off the road, he did, I think he did a tour with you guys at one point. <laughs> and I, I spent a bit of time with young topper and, uh, and okay. I'd see, and I'd see Strummer and, and Josh, uh, the artist. Uh, oh, right. Yeah, yeah. From New York. So, so yeah. yeah there's three degrees of separation when when you, when you get to it. Where are you from, Frank? I'm from uh, a wee village in Stirlingshire, Paul, called Bank Knock. It's okay. uh, a little coal. It was a coal mining village, and it's, it turned into a housing estate. And I still go back there every year. And Okay. How's it doing up there? It's grim. <laughs> it can be it, it can be grim compared to where I am now. But you know, somebody said, "What's it like going back?" I said, "You can't go back to a place you never left." And it's yeah. never left the village. I've been in America since 1977, but the village has never left me. You know. Yeah. Well, they not, think not well they, I, they they don't leave you. I mean, it's like I spent like you know like about a year in in Spain in Mallorca. Uh, yeah, it's all right. It's fine. But the only thing is, I, everyone is so civilized there. And it's, it's surprising that, you know, people brush past you and they apologize. And 
And what I missed is being in London that everyone's got some bloody problem. Yes. <laughs> look like moody bastards. What's the, ma- what's the matter with you? But then again, I missed it, which is so ridiculous. But that's what I'm used to, I guess. So, Gala, can you recall the first time you played in front of an audience? Man, so young. Uh, I, Paul knows this story. I had this little, like, stool that I would carry around the village and air where I grew up in, and like when my dad would be having his naps, I would just like go to anyone who would listen to the neighbors and be like, hi, I'm Gallon. I'm going to sing you a song about the mountains and the birds and the bees. And they'd be like, what, again? I'd be like, yes, again. <laughs> and I would um, put the stool in front of them. I just remember this so well, because it was always like a very cool, like, you know, like it could be like summer heat and I'd go in and be like this dark hood. It would be like a granny or someone's aunt who like, has to put up with it. And I'd just get up on the stool and sing anything and everything I could remember. Ah. Um, but then the actual first song I remember, like a grown-up uh, learning, was "Girl" by um, by the Beatles. My dad and I used to sing together in bars and stuff. Speaking of your dad, um, Kevin Ayers, mm-hmm. I, I used to see him in Watford in no King, Kingham Hall, and he'd be on stage in a fucking Afghan coat. With lines on it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm going no. That's and one I of the it stories. Normally, it's like he slept with my wife. I remember. I remember. He was so remember, high. He whatever. Like that's like an okay. I, I thought that boy must be sweating up there. <laughs> he must. It was. Uh, but I remember that. So he made an. He made an. Uh, an what impression. year? What year? Would, um, oh, that was. I was in. I was living in Walford in '71. Uh, 72 I worked with Susie Quattro back then and we had a we had a roadie house in Watford there were three roadies and a professional criminal it was a really good house I miss it sounds like the beginning of a joke no (laughs) there's a lot of jokes but but, uh, not stories that are fit for prime time some of them (laughs) I bet I don't want to know especially Um, when I think around that those years Kevin was very much into um macrobiotic lifestyle so for all for all we know he's probably wearing that so that he could sweat more toxins out you know i i i, I was jealous that he had, he had that hair in a in a, an afghan um so you know uh, genetics what can i say uh, those, those influences though growing up in that environment with him must have a lot of it well some of it will be genetic but a lot of it culturally will have washed up into you you well, you think? can go both ways when, with that life. And I think um, I've come to the point in my life that I've done both. So at first, you know, performing and stuff was just something that every day a kid did because every parent was a, was an artist of some form. And then you kind of realize that you want to be a policewoman or a vet or a doctor because like, there are no real grown-ups and someone has to be a grown-up. And in my, that, um, the way that developed in my life is I became quite an academic. I have two master degrees and things like that. So I, 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 even though I, I played around with, I like writing, um, and I played around with poetry a lot and I did some performing and I worked with Chris and Tina and stuff like that. I, I wasn't sure about it as a career per se. And then it just slowly kind of took over my soul. And now it feels very much like I have a balance of both worlds, which is what I, what I was hoping to achieve. Um, so yeah but I think I mean I have some friends who had similar childhoods and they always just wanted to be like their parent um, I wasn't necessarily that and Paul um, 
you've been a you've been a painter since you were a young fella. Yeah, and, since uh, I was a baby. Yeah, and and you know, art schools produced a, a lot of musicians through the years. Um, is there any explanation as to why those who work in creative arts find a creative magic in playing in bands and writing songs? Uh, well, I can't really say it really because I, I went to art college to be a painter, whereas the guitarist Mick Jones, he, he went to art college because he thought that's where you go to form a band. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and after a year at art college, I, I was having a problem with the college and drifted into, uh, well, I started hanging out with Mick Jones and we decided to work together to put a band together. And I had to learn how to play, basically. So up to that point, you had no interest in picking up an instrument, really? No. I just wanted to be a painter. And you still are. Well, I realised I can do both. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's actually quite interesting, because in, in, in the beginning, when I first met Mick, he kept going on about Stuart Sutcliffe, that he was the bass player of the Beatles, and I said... No, he wasn't. It was Paul McCartney. He said, no, there was a bloke before who was a bit like you. He couldn't play bass, but he looked sort of a bit like you, and, and he was the original bass player for the Beatles, and he was a good mate of John Lennon's. And so Mick would introduce me to his friends, his his guitar friends, say, oh, yeah, this is my bass player. He can't play bass, but he's a good artist. So... <laughs> Uh, yeah, and who's to say? Who's to say? Who's to stop you? You know, drive till I always say drive till they take the keys away. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and and yes. and, uh, <laughs> and Garland, what about you? Are you? Uh, were you ever a painter? Weirdly enough, I was. Like, if I think if anybody um, or anybody for a while after high school. Uh, who would re-meet me would be like, you know, so where are you exhibiting or what art school did you go to? I only applied to art schools. And um, I, in the end, I didn't go to the ones in the UK. I decided I wanted to take a year out to make sure I didn't forget my Spanish. And I moved back to, from university in the UK, I moved back to Mallorca. And then I went to Barcelona. I got into a very hard to get into art school called La Masana. But, I underestimated how difficult it was to learn anything in Mallorquin stroke Catalan, like the local dialect. I thought that I'd just be able to because I'd grown up with it, but actually to write essays in it was just way over my head. And the other thing that really put me off, which is why I kind of dropped out essentially after a few months and went and did other things, but um, was that you were allowed to smoke in the classroom, right? So this would be like winter because we'd start in September and you'd have 35 people chain smoking in a room with the windows closed every day. I just couldn't. Yeah, couldn't get away without these. I actually lived in San Sebastian for about six months. I'm uh, jealous. I love San Sebastian. Uh, if, I, if the job had worked out, I would still be there. The job didn't really? work out. It... Uh, La Concha, qué bonita. La Concha, La Perla. My office, yeah. my office looked right at La Concha, and and wow. I would at lunchtime I just go down and I, would, I was they called me El Playero. Playero. <laughs> oh, oh man, yeah, bring me back. My mouth waters. You've been Paul, no? To yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the, yeah. The, the pinchos, the pinchos. 
yeah, to, yeah. Da- to the, die the for. Marisco and the, all the uh, fish. And, uh, no, I have some good friends up there um, who I actually met in art school. So I used to go, uh, we used to get on the train and go up like Las Figueras and up to San Sebastian and we'd stay with his parents who, and she would make, and the mom would make amazing um, gallego food. It was amazing. Oh. <laughs> the, the food. It's the homemade pachuran that I miss. What's the that? What? The homemade pachuran. Pachuran? Yeah. I don't recall what pachuran is. It's a drink. Uh, it's berries. Oh, I, I don't drink alcohol, so I never experienced that. Okay. Believe I'm a Scotsman and my dad was Irish and I don't drink. Well, not anymore. Okay. Not for the last okay. long, long time. I gave it up. And it, <laughs> it gave me up. It uh, gave you up. <laughs> I, 32 years, I've, I've been completely abstinent from all of it. But, but you know, wow. I'm not boasting. It's just, I'm 76 years well, old and I'm still it's doing a, it's this. A good, it's a good habit to drop. You, ah, well, I had, my, I had my share. So, Galen, I got I got uh, in contact with you and your people through uh, Chris and Tina, who I talk mm. to daily sometimes. Um, and and they met they met they met at an art school and forum Talking Heads with David Byrne, uh, you know. So I, I worked with Talking Heads from '77 on for a, quite a long time till uh, I just uh, you know things change and you move on, you know. And uh, but I had the best years with them. I had some. I had some some great years with them with and Tom Tom Club. So how was it working with them with Chris and Tina? I know they're wonderful people, you know. Um, and what? How did you get involved with them? My aunt lived near them in Connecticut and had one of my demos and played it to them and they liked it. And I was in university doing my BA, and they uh, they were just so open and friendly and supportive, and they just invited me to go and. And hang out and work with them and see if I could do some demos. And um, my grandma lived nearby and my family, so it kind of worked out. But I ended up um, actually staying at theirs. And we um, we recorded at the Playhouse, is that what it's called? The, yep, the, the Clubhouse. Yeah, the Clubhouse, exactly. A wonderful space and the house is wonderful. And, and they're just wonderful, as you know, and, and yeah, the kids and everything. And then um, and then I met all, all these um, all. They're great friends from New York. Like uh, Richard Lloyd came up and played some of the most incredible guitar I've ever experienced. I mean, I had like an out of body experience listening to this man, and I hadn't grown up, you know, listening to television or any of really the mute that scene. So I got to real insight in that. And then um, I met. We were speaking about Gary's kid. I met um, Josh, there, who's a lifelong friend now. So it was just it was just really generous, fun, loving. And then my dad came up a few times to hang out with us and had all sorts of crazy nights, all of us together. And it was just a good family vibe. And um, and then I was meant to go back to finish some things. And then 9-11 happened. And I just didn't go back. It was just one of those things. Yeah. And things are of the time, as yeah. we know. Uh and what what you uh, what what are you up to, Paul, in in London? Other uh, other than this project, do you have anything else on the go? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I've been DJing at the local pub with some friends for the local community. That's quite fun, playing very obscure and you know, sort of uh, it's like music that that is classic, but but nobody's ever heard of it. 
it's like classic singles uh yeah doing that just working on some ideas for songs um yeah recovering from our show in paris cooking i don't know just yeah, real yeah, i've been doing such mundane things like i did my washing and i'm like da -da -da, and it's just been it's been good to kind of so you're a bit of a cook oh since i was a baby yeah i i had yeah. uh i took two years off the road in 75 and opened the restaurant above the hope and anchor that was my place uh, okay for a couple of That's years funny. in it and uh you know yeah uh, like all good things it came to an end and and uh, i jumped straight back in and and toured with talking heads and the ramones that was my first job back from, from Amazing. my little and you sabbatical. said now you're working with the b-52s didn't i hear that the 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 finishing Just read the small print they said they were it was their farewell tour we are not touring we are doing one-offs uh... and privates and uh a, a 12-day residency in vegas in august we just did one in, in in may march and uh so we do we'll do these residencies uh but they won't get on a bus and tour like tour one-nighters we won't do that again and to your idea paul of doing multiple nights that's what we did on the tour we did multiple yeah. nights in each city and played smaller venues and it's talking, heads, talking yeah. heads had that idea too we we we, we didn't because so sound quality was crucial for them and for me i mean when we played radio city that was uh, you know it, it was a good experience and it sounded good but it to go from 2000 to 4000 seats is a big jump yeah it takes you Something. away from the communication with the audience yeah and, uh, and well, just a bit uh, but enough to make a difference so they're not getting value for money uh, a lot of the times no though with these modern pas and modern equipment that we've got there's no excuse for for bad sound anywhere are we going to see you in america is this record going to going to play in america you're going to tour or what uh we'll, we'll play anywhere Aye, when you when you get the offers so yeah i, mean, yeah. I think well, it would do very well in america you know I think it would do very so well. Too. I mean, we've had a lot of support online and and, you know, and people buying the record and, and and press and everything. So, you know, the sky's the limit. It's just working out the practical side of the, the, the sky. Nuts and bolts the side. weather, the weather of the sky. We took talking heads according to the weather. In the winter, we go west. Love and, that. And the, and in the summer, we go north. So when Talking Heads started, it was missionary work. You know, we were going out and playing places that nobody else had, would go, yeah. really. You know, we had to find places to play because the genre was, there was at that time, well, they're not, they're, what are they? They're not punk, they're not rock, they're not this, they're not that. You yeah, think well, that's like early days of the Clash were like that. They wouldn't have punk groups, so so we went to find, like, cinemas or, or, or yeah. alternative places. Yes, yes, you had to, you had to. Yeah. All right, you've been brilliant. Take care. And, Thank right. you, Frank. Thanks, Frank. Thanks for plugging in. We can't do it without you. And you can support the show at soundmanconfidential.com and listen to previous episodes. Soundman Confidential is produced by Alan Black and Chip Bentley. Social media by Mackenzie Chase. Web design by Addy Bell. Publicity by Paddy DeVries at Devious Planet Media.